Hello, everybody, and welcome to the 90th episode of MTG Fast Finance, the podcast that got a co-host and a polar bear onto the Canadian national team today. MGG Fast Finance is your weekly podcast covering the world of magic gathering, finance, collection management, and speculation. A quick message from our sponsor, Face-to-Face Games. Face-to-Facegames.com provides competitive pricing on magic singles and sealed product with shipping to both the U.S. and Canada. Check out Face-to-Face card pricing via mtgprice.com while they're building your deck or stockpiling a spec. I'm your co-host, James Chilcott, a.k.a. at MDG Critic on Twitter. My co-host, as always, is Travis Allen, a.k.a. at Wizard Bumpin', and we're here to help you guys make and save money playing our favorite game, Magic the Gathering. Hey, guys. Glad to be here and looking forward to sharing some valuable information with all of you. This show is sponsored by MTGPrice.com, the leading MTG finance community. Sign up today at MTGPrice.com to manage your collection, track your specs, and read articles by some of the best financial minds in the hobby. Hey, Travis, what's on the agenda this week? Well, James, this week we have a show in four parts. Segment one is our top movers, where we will be looking at the cards that have risen the most in price this week. Segment two is our cards to watch. James and I are going to talk about some of the cards that we have our eye on we think could rise in price. Segment three is our metagame week in review. This week we're talking about Star City Charlotte. That was a modern open this past weekend. And segment four, our topic of the week, the future of local gaming shops. Uh, How does Wizards ensure that paper magic remains viable and relevant moving into the next decade. So let's start off with segment one, our top movers. First card of the week, the Scarab God Invocation from the Masterpiece set, obviously a foil, started the week at just under $100. And uh, according to my most latest information, uh, has still not sold a copy above $100. So the market price was at 88. It's climbed up to 94. So somebody probably bought a copy at 95 or something, but I have watched the lowest, the cheapest near mint foil on invocations drop from 250, like five days ago to $110 today. Uh, so that is plummeted. Somebody had a, had a buyout here, but it just is not sticking at this point. Yeah, this is a card you're absolutely going to want to get off the train on because down the road when it rotates at a standard or falls out of favor in standard for some reason, the EDH demand for this card is not going to be enough to sustain anywhere close to the price plateau it's currently at. And the copies that are out there will slowly work their way back into the market as buy lists get more aggressive. And, um, you know, it's going to have, it may, may well be a dominant card for the entire year in standard, but. After that, it's not a modern card. No, and I I paid close attention when I saw when this spiked because I was ready to pull the trigger on a couple copies at like 120 or something like that. Uh, but it just kept slipping and slipping. So, you know, some uh, these invocations and the inventions have certainly proven that they can sustain some pretty wild price spikes. But at the same time, we've seen several kind of retreat pretty rapidly. Uh, Scarab God seems to be in that ballpark, but you know, do do keep in mind here uh, that it is not a modern card, but it is definitely an EDH card, which is why the price on this is so high in the first place. Because before this card was even played in standard, it was uh, seeing some pretty good mod- uh, EDH chops. So I am not counting the masterpiece, the invocation out at this point. Just we're not there today. Yeah, the thing is that the invocations, masterpieces, expeditions, etc., that have done the best 
um, that have been underestimated early and then and then ramped up later have been four of modern staples and core cards in EDH. So things like Masterpiece Soul Ring or um, Masterpiece Chalice of the Void. Um, Cross-format all-stars that are in super high demand by a whole bunch of people as a single card or um, a slightly smaller subset of people for specific decks in popular formats. And Scarab God um, is, you know, top of the heap in standard right now. It's kind of a defining card in the format. But, you know, if you pop one of these in a pack or something and you can get out anywhere over $100, you're already, you know, in the money. You can buy yourself a new box or some staples and modern that you need. Um, if you can get in over 100, out over 150, you're you're really swimming in in gold. So you should just go ahead and do that. No, I agree with that one. Uh, okay, what is our next card for the week? Uh, after we called it, anointed procession foils seem to have jumped from ten dollars to twenty five dollars, um, up 150 percent. That's pretty quick. <laughs> now there, there there wasn't a whole lot left on the rack uh, when we were calling that out, and we're not the only ones who were talking about it. Um, cards a pretty obvious must-have for a lot of token decks in EDH. Um, unlikely to see any kind of a reprint anytime soon, certainly not as a foil. Um, so, I mean, you can, if you snap those up in the like 6 to $10 range and you feel like getting out now and reinvesting in something else, there's nothing wrong with that move. If you want to hold for a little while to see if you can push into like the 30 to $40 range, that's also a viable option. Um, you know, really just depends on how quickly you think you can turn and burn into something else that's pretty excellent. Yep, I would definitely be selling here if I had them. Um, I, you know, I I called it last week, but didn't end up picking any copies up. Uh, but yeah, I, I would probably have them listed here. But I wouldn't feel terrible if I didn't manage to dump them because I do think that you'll basically get to double dip on this a little later. Let's put it this way. I, I bought a bunch of foil Japanese copies pretty early on at $8 um, and got offered 20 a piece on eBay this week and turned it down. Hmm. Okay. Uh, our next card for the week is Iron Maiden from Urza's Legacy. We are looking at the foils here, uh, which supposedly jumped from 6 to 17. Now, Iron Maiden, I'm going to let you guys know what this says. It is a three-mana artifact. At the beginning of each opponent's upkeep, uh, part of the Oracle text does include the microwave in the background, too, though, by the way. That is required for this card. <laughs> At the beginning of each opponent's upkeep, Iron Maiden deals X damage to that player where X is the number of cards in his or her hand, minus four. Uh, so this is just a, this is just a fl- fixed black vice, right? Like, isn't that... Uh, yeah, this is just a fixed black vice. So given that the masterpiece black vice is like the least valuable of all of the Kaladesh inventions, I'm inclined to say that whoever bought an outfoil Iron Maiden, did they think it was reserveless? I don't get the angle here. I think they're just people are looking at Urza's legacy and destiny foils and considering that they're the first two sets of foils ever. Um, and their inventories are super low. It, it's not even particularly relevant whether or not it's reserve list because it's it's early foil printings of magic cards. And so the assumption here is that anybody who ever wants to assemble a set of said foils needs to go through the door of whoever's holding them. And, you know, they're they're way down the priority list at this point. But, you know, here we are. Yeah. Uh, what do you got next for us? Conjurer's Bobble Foils from $2 to seven seventy five. Um, that's a 288% gain, almost six bucks. Um, got a note here. It says it's highly played as a single printed common. Where's Conjurer's Bobble played? Um, eggs and wait, 
as conjurer's bauble. Wait, maybe I had I I might have picked the wrong one here. Uh, let me double check here. Conjurer's bauble. Uh, I am. <laughs> whoops. I was thinking of one of the other eggs. Uh, conjurer's bauble is played in eggs, but it's usually as a one of. So I guess then this is probably because it's just a utility artifact uh in supply you know it hasn't been printed in foil since fifth on so supply has just drained over time um and someone must have just picked up the last copy but so it is it has its use but it is not i would say heavily played all sorts of mid to long term like in terms of age foils have been being targeted alongside reserve list cards and as that goes on again there's people that are just moving down the priority list so yeah. um bobble's not something i want to be holding um if i can get out on it near eight dollars and i had one sitting around great i'm all of us are super unlikely to have stacks of these because why would you have um so i think we can move right along sure uh next on our list is right of consumption this is from Shadowmoor. Went the foils went from two fifty to eleven supposedly. Um, this one is the uh, two mana sorcery. There's an additional cost sack a creature, and then it deals damage equal to that creature's power to target player, and you gain that life. Uh, I'm looking at EDH rec, and I'm not seeing this anywhere. Did this pop up in a modern list that I'm unaware of? Not that I'm aware of. Um, if anybody knows anything about this card, feel free to let us know. I don't remember seeing it pop up anywhere at the Modern Tournament at SCG last weekend, and I haven't heard any other stories about it. Maybe there was a streamer that was uh, doing something funky with it. Yeah, and my MTG Top 8, I'm just seeing results like in Karlov of the Ghost Council. Um, not really any other meaningful results. I mean, it's an interesting card, and it does feasibly have a place in some modern combo decks. I remember Jeskai Ascendancy, I think, ran a copy of it. Um you know, you could pump up your like Birds of Paradise with a bunch of triggers and then nuke people or something like that. But uh, yeah, I don't. Uh, I, I'd be more interested in, in this if it was instant speed and I could use it with the uh, Phyrexian Dreadnought trigger on the stack in Legacy. Sure. Yep. That would be a thing you could do to people. <laughs> you, you, you could throw it in there alongside all the other bad <laughs> combos in that deck, like Stifle and Eldrazi Mimic. Yep. Yeah. That'd be, be a Legacy deck. That's for sure. What do you got All right, for so next, next on the list, we've got uh, the first reasonable card, Bloodbraid Elf Foils from uh, uh, Alara Block, uh, going from $8 to 50 This is everybody anticipating that eventually Bloodbraid Elf will be unbanned for modern. Um, I'd say there's a pretty decent chance that happens. I'm not, but it probably happens alongside the card getting reprinted. Um, and... The foils of the card uh, from the original printing, how high are they going to get? Can they hold 50 plus if it's reprinted? It's hard to say. I mean, it's not a rare. It's an uncommon, right? Yeah, there's no way that Foil Bloodbraid Elf is a $50 card. It is feasibly a $25 foil. But, I mean, you've got the F&M promo, the pack foil, and you're right. Uh, you know, we could see it pop up in... Um, another in masters 25 or some other product where you get it in foil. So, uh, it is a cool card and I, I, it is, I think on the very high list of cards, it could be unbanned, but I don't think that it's, uh, the $50 is a reasonable price point. The other thing is that's probably an early strike, right? Because the, I think there was a note from wizards saying that they wanted to wait and see what happened 
after the pro tour for rivals of Ixalan, which is going to be uh, include modern, right? That's the, that's the one that has a modern segment involved. Um, you got me. I don't remember. I, th- I think so. I'll correct it in show notes if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that, that that's the, the pro tour this year. That's got modern involved in it um, as part of the play leading up to the 25th anniversary uh, celebration. So the, um, I'm pretty sure they issued a note saying they wanted to see how that played out before they made any changes to modern. So I don't think it's going to get anything's going to get banned or unbanned in anticipation. There was a banned list announcement this week. There was nothing on it. Um, everybody is talking about in their, you know, the pros are talking about in their content articles about how modern's in the best place it's ever been and might be the healthiest format in magic right now. Um, and all of that adds up to no changes in the very near future. So it seems like whoever like racked up a stack of those, BBE foils is going to be sitting on them for a while, um, hoping for greater fools to wander by. Yeah, and I uh, I also agree that it seems unlikely that we will see a unban ahead of that Pro Tour, just because we haven't seen Modern on the Pro Tour stage or the international stage in quite a while. Uh, you know, it's mostly just been local event star cities and some GPs. Uh, it's also, like you said, in a really good position place right now. And everyone agrees with that. So I don't think wizards is going to be eager to screw something up. That's already looks, uh, like it's going to be a rewarding format to watch. The other thing that plays into this is that it just got reprinted in eternal masters and those foils go for like $4 and they have better art by far. Oh, so EMA too. That's right. So it's not like people are going to be desperate for a source for these foils. And those foils haven't spiked at all in sync with this. So, I mean, it's a targeted buyout. And if they, if, a, if a buyout doesn't sweep everything, um, then it's going to have serious competition from the other printing. Yeah. Yep. All right. Uh, last card of the week is Lost Leonin from New Phyrexia. According to this, it went from like a quarter or 40 cents to like 10 bucks. And that is indeed the cheapest copy on TCG player right now. Although the market price is still 42 cents. Is this a pauper card? Like that is the best thing I can imagine. But like the stock of this must have been really high, right? Like why would this card have low stock? Like in order to buy this out, you would have had to buy, I would imagine, 100 copies I know nothing about this card. I, I'm guessing that it was significantly less than that, and somebody took a swipe. I don't know why, um, but this is a, a huge candidate for just ignore this and move on. Yeah, and you know what? If uh, yeah, sure, whatever. I, I I don't care if it's Popper. Popper doesn't have Popper cannot drive prices. Yeah, um, the, the Popper community is like the front is like the frontier community. It's like a shadow of most of the core formats. So it's no more relevant than what got played at the Hyruya Frontier Championships last week. Uh, oh, did they really have those? <laughs> yeah. Format's healthy. I'm it's sure. just no, nobody, you know, it's only being played in Japan and Toronto. Uh, so. Yeah, I'm sure it's amusing. I don't doubt that. Um, okay, let's move on to segment two, our cards to watch. James, why don't you get us started? So there's a couple of lands at a Kaladesh that uh, foils are getting relatively low supply and between their standard demand and their insurgency into modern, um, probably a decent uh, idea to be picking some of these up. The first is bot- Botanical Sanctum. Um, these foils are relevant if you, uh, blue-green merfolk becomes a thing uh, in modern and it looks like it has a shot. Um, you can there's very few copies around. You can get them for about fifteen bucks. I would say that your sell target somewhere in the twenty five to thirty dollar range, so something like a sixty to eighty percent return. Um, 
you know, if there's some in a local showcase, if you want to snap up the last few copies that you find on TCG or eBay or what have you, um, highly doubtful that you're going to lose any money. At worst, you'll get stalled out. Um, so if you've got a deck for them, all the better. Um, but you know, this is these are not lands um, that are going to get reprinted anytime soon in foil. Um, they've got probably a few years before we see them again. Uh, three to five would be my guess. So any of these that have super low foil supply, um, even if some of that uh, some of that demand is coming from standard, um, the foils are not likely to rush back into the market at rotation. Okay, these were uh, yeah. I mean, we've seen the other fast lands uh, do pretty well in modern. Uh, yeah, obviously Black Cleave Cliffs, especially. Um, so there's clearly it is, they are definitely one of the only lands, modern producing lands, or should I say non-utility lands in modern that isn't a fetch or a shock that does, you know, that sees meaningful and sustained play. Um, so yeah, these look like uh, some pretty ripe targets. You'll probably be hanging on to them for a little while, but even still, uh, they're they're safe. At the very least, I like these as sort of safe pickups at your local trade, at your local trades, Um you know, somebody's going to have one, probably not a lot of local demand for these. So you might be able to get a bit of a deal on it. Uh, and then you just kind of hang out with it. And that's how I ended up with a lot of my fast lands, um, just because they weren't that interesting at the time. And then suddenly they were. Yeah, I'll, I'll jump into the other one since they're related. Um, Blooming Marsh is the other one that's relevant. Um, uh, for the blue green one to be a great hold, you kind of need blue green merfolk and or a Sultai control deck to kind of post up at least tier 1.5 or tier 2 um, over time. The, there's, there's also some reason to be playing these in EDH, where they come into play untapped in early turns um, and aren't a big deal to come into play tapped later in the game. Uh, Blooming Marsh is a be- slightly better pedigree because between Jund, Green-Black Tron, Sultai Control, and Abzan decks, just to name a few, there is a lot of decks that want early access to both green and black mana. Maybe they want to cast Traverse the Ulvenwald and or Thoughtseize or Inquisition of Kozilek or Fatal Push. And between that grouping of spells, you have uh, the li- likelihood that you're going to have solid demand. And interestingly, these foils, because they're not um, as uh, needed in standard right now, um, are a little less. You can get them for about 13 and I would say that your exit is, again, somewhere in the 25 to $30 range. Okay. Uh, I like them. My first pick of the week is Dictative Erebus. This is the uh, Grave Pact from Theros with Flash. Uh, one mana more, but one black less. Uh, foil copies for Dictate are currently $11, 11 to $12. Um, foil grave packs, meanwhile, are start at twenty five and go up into the eighty to ninety dollar range or some nonsense. So there's definitely a precedent for this effect being very powerful, um, very popular. Dictative Erebus is currently the fifth most popular black card in EDH. Uh, so we are definitely going to see dictate reprints, but they are probably going to be the same way we see reprints. Uh, and we already have too, right? Like it was in, uh, what was that? It was in, no, they haven't reprinted it. I'm sorry. So it has not been reprinted in commander yet. Honestly, I'm a little surprised by that. We will see this in commander sets or something similar. Uh, but I don't think we're going to see foils. I mean, that tends to be the trend with these types of cards, these reprints, as they put them in Commander over and over again. But you never get any more foils. Uh, so at eleven dollars, this is a pretty, pretty tempting in. Um, you know, with the cheapest gray pack sitting at twenty five, I think Dictate is is can comfortably match that and possibly creep up from there. Super low supply. 
Um, I remember, I think this was one of the first EDH specs I made on the back of a recommendation, I'm almost certain, from Jason Alt, mm-hmm. um, who called it relatively early. And I think these foils were like grabbable in the 2 to $4 range at one point. Um, it was never a really like a, a relevant card in standard when Theros Block was a thing. Um, and EDH Finance hadn't really taken off quite at that point, like three years ago. So pretty sure I have some of these sitting around. Uh, don't hate them in the 10 to $12 range either. I think you're absolutely right that they're probably going to end up in the 25 to 30 range before you ever see a foil reprint. Now, there is a slight chance it pops up in some upcoming supplemental or master set. Um, but that's just kind of a roll of the dice. So... With supply as low as it is, you could like sweep it all up for 100 or $200 and then try to sell your way back into the market with a decent profit bef- and, you know, just cross your fingers that you make it, you know, 12 to 18 months selling a couple copies a month before you ever have to worry about the reprint. Yeah, I mean, that's that is certainly the the concern, right, that you um, you get nailed on a reprint in like Masters 25 or something. So. Uh, I mean, that exists for most of the cards we talk about, but I would put that I am not too terribly concerned about it at that point. At this point, how about that? Well, I mean, some cards have more insulation because they have a unique mechanic on them or something. So, like, for instance, energy cards are not going to be something that you're going to expect to show up in a lot of supplemental products anytime soon because they're so parasitic and only work with each other to the point where you're not just going to see a random one pop up in a master set. They would have to make it a whole theme and that's down the road. And is there even a deep enough energy pool to make that worthwhile? Is that 2019, 2021? Do they have to bring back energy again first? Would they even do that given how dominant energy has been? There's a whole bunch of things protecting those kind of cards. Now down from that are cards like this that have thematic elements. So Dictative Erebos refers to a specific Theros based God. Um, So is there a Theros theme in the set? Um, or is there a d- distinct need for this card? Hard to picture the limited environment that really needs this card um, to, to fill in a gap in the, in the tool set for that color. So all of that p- puts it probably at like low to moderate to ma- like risk of reprint. Yeah, and keep in mind, we're, we're only talking about foil reprints too, right? Like that's right, what right, we're right. worried about, yeah. So I think those are all fair and points. It, and as with most EDH specs, your, your best of all worlds is that it actually shows up next year in, in the Commander product. Because if they reprint it in Commander non-foil, then your foils are gold. Right. And it also means you just introduce a bunch of players to that card. Yep. You know, if you get half of a percent of people who buy those Commander products that decide to foil their deck or foil some of it, you get a lot of people in uh, interested in that. Um, a lot of new customers for your card. Well, and when you pick up a card at 10 and hope it's going to go to 20 or 30, you're you're squarely in that impulse purchase zone on a Friday night on eBay when the guys had a few beers, much more so than a three or $400 foil or something like a guy's cradle, cradle judge promo. Right, right. Um, all right, what is your next card, third card? Uh, final picks, just a card I have my eye on, Cavern of Souls, Modern Masters 2017. You can get copies as low as $43, $44, probably going to get hit 70 60 to 70 again before it sees a reprint um i think they're going to leave this one on the shelf for a while um they just did their tribal themed sets this year with ixalan and with the commander sets so there's not going to be any huge impetus to put this back into the space again um anytime soon so i think this one gets like two three four years now that it's that it's seen a reprint in uh, modern masters 2017 last spring and that means it's almost certainly going to regain the lost ground and get back to that 70 to $80 range it was pushing before I got the reprint. 
I really like this card with one caveat. I would wait until Rivals of Ixalan because it wouldn't be the first time they've kind of backed back to these types of things before. And given that it is another tribal, the second tribal set, it gives them the opportunity to sneak that in. I'm not saying it'll show up, but we're so close to Rivals, I feel like. I mean, you're at like two months. Uh, I would probably just want to make sure that that wasn't in there. And then if it was, I think it's a good choice. There's some risk there. I think I've, I'd roll those dice. It, within a year, same print, same card, I, I find it hard to believe. It und- It undermines boxes of eternal uh modern masters 2017 that are still on shelves so i i I don't think we're going to see that happen and i don't think they need it in the format um to to make that block work um but you know time will tell right 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 yeah yeah yeah. for sure for sure it's it's i I would put the odds of it happening at, at low right it's just sort of like well yeah um all right, my other card for the week is uh, is Cryptgast. Looking at the Gate Crash foils, currently available just over eight dollars, eight and change, nine dollars. Uh, Cryptgast has basically the same rules text as Nirkana Revenant, which has forty five dollar foils, except Cryptgast has a more useful second line of text, and he's cheaper. So you have a uh, heavily played black creature that doubles all of your swamp mana. The other foils 45 bucks. This one is eight dollars and change, and they keep printing it in commander sets, which means you know they're they're they have found the venue that they wish to reprint this card in. It's also got extort on it, which means you can't just throw it in anywhere. So these seem like a pretty comfortable ride up to twenty dollars. How many how many copies in EDH decks? Uh, let me find it. Uh, Crypt Gas is in 15,800 decks. Oh, bye, 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 bye. This <laughs> is the best pick of the week. Uh, for all the reasons you just listed. The, yeah, I got nothing more to say. This is a, a slam dunk. Um, you might sit on these for a while. You're only going to sell them out through the market one at a time. Again, it's one of these things where you're going to sell one a month and make 10 or $20 on them, but seems very reliable. Good pick. Thank you. It's uh, it's been really tough the last few weeks just pulling up the top cards on EDH rack and just finding an underpriced foil. <laughs> As Jason Alt says, it's uh, MTG Finance on easy mode. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on to segment three, our metagame week in review. This week we're looking at Star City Charlotte. It was a modern open first place Blue Red Storm with uh, it was Brawl, Brawl Chief of Compliance, Brawl Storm, um, an otherwise uninteresting uh, storm list, uh, pretty much what we're used to. I saw several storm players breathing a collective sigh of relief on Twitter after they managed to dodge the banless update once again. Uh, I think storm is, has the record for duck to survive the most pieces getting banned, uh, and still be playable. Also saw, we saw another copy in third place. We saw some affinity, affinity in second, dash shadow in fourth, uh, affinity in fifth as well. Green white company in the hands of Todd Stevens. Remember you talked about that. Uh, the Corsair Cruffix out of that deck late last week or the week before that. Um, and then in seventh and eighth, eighth, uh, 
green red land destruction or ponza you might hear it called and blue green merfolk in eighth so uh touching on the ponza deck real quick this looks fairly standard to me um you've got utopia sprawl in there which is a card that i am so like so tempted to buy copies of uh and you know foils or non-foils but the problem is i'm afraid wizards is going to smash my face open as soon as i do so i avoid it um some stone rain big fan of stone rain uh otherwise a very cool list um and then this blue green merfolk deck i don't know what was your take on all of this <laughs> so alan cummings is running that so it's not like some rando and this is interesting that this early in attempting to tune blue green merfolk for modern um that testing yielded confidence to take that into a major tournament and then top aided like right away and I mean, this is on the back of only a few reasons to splash. You've got Kumena's Speaker, which is a Ixalan uh, uncommon, uh, a one drop for one green. It gets plus one, plus one, as long as you control another merfolk or an island. So it's just a one mana 2-2. Two, two. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a one mana 2-2 two, two if you've got, if you start off with a uh, breeding pool. And um, the other inclusion is Merfolk Branch Walker, which is also an uncommon from Ixalan. It's a... 2-1 for uh, 1 and a green, and if it enters the battlefield, you explore, which means that it ends up being, uh, you either put a card into your hand if it's a land, so it draws you a land, or it becomes a 3-2 for 2, it, which your lords then make into a 4-3 and a 5-4, etc. I think I had to read this list three times before I realized that uh, Collective Company was not in it. Yeah. <laughs> and Kopala, Warden of Waves, makes an appearance as a 1-of. So that's cool. And the only other green you see in this deck is for natural state. Three copies in the sideboard against uh, Affinity and whoever has problematic artifacts. Yeah. I don't... I, I looked at this. I am <laughs> I looked at this list and then I looked back at the place and I looked back at the list and I'm like, what am I missing? How did this get eighth place? Did this guy just run as hot as the sun? Because I can't imagine that the thing this deck was missing was a one mana 2-2 two, two, and a two mana 3-2. It seems strange, right? But other than Curse Catcher, they didn't really have a good one drop, right? Like it, the, that one drop was de- de- defensive for future threats, as opposed to presenting a threat on turn one that they then have to decide whether to path or fatal push to hold on to their life total. Didn't is it really? Is that the only one they had? Hold on, let me look at this Merfolk list. Let me look at. They might have been the only one. Um, yeah, I guess they were all twos. I mean, that is true. They had no other one drops. They had no other one drops. But, but, but I'm willing to extend your comment to Merfolk Branchwalker. Yeah. I mean, is, is it good because it's like Silvergill Adepts five through eight? It, it provides additional card value in a deck that sometimes runs out of gas. And two Mer- Merfolk Regery too. That's not even a good one. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I mean, you see that in lists. Yeah, yeah, Because yeah. Of the, the ability to tap or untap things and whatever, and it's a lord. Um, interesting that it, they're running a copy of Smuggler's Copter. Mm-hmm. That's a pile of foils I've got sitting around hoping somebody starts running four copies. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, I mean, this is part of the reason that I that I listed Botanical Sanctum, because they're running two Breeding Pool, but four Sanctum. So if this became the default configuration for Merfolk, and a bunch of the Merfolk players have to switch over... Then demand for foil sanctums um, could be a thing. Yeah, you know what I see over in the sideboard? Okay. Ceremonies rejection. 
Yep, got a bunch of those foils sitting around too. I mean, the way the meta shapes up right now, Affinity is still good, always good. Um, Tron decks of various flavors are, I think, like top of the heap or pretty close to it, uh, maybe like second to Storm. But there's a lot of Tron builds, Eldrazi Tron, Green Black Tron, Green Red Tron, Colorless Tron, and Rejection is just so good against all of those if you easily have access to a single blue. And the fact that the blue decks can now lean on Opt and play the instant speed end of turn draw scry game instead of having to Serum Visions in their main makes managing you know what they counter early on um, that much better. So like in a turn where they might have played an expedition map to, to set up Tron and you had to play Serum Vision so that you could get the value out of it, maybe you get to hold up Opt and Ceremonious Rejection and decide whether you want to shut down the assembling of their Tron. Yeah, so, being, I mean, being able to swap Opt for Sleight of Hand, which is a slight downgrade, but getting to keep all of your instant speed stuff up at the same time does seem like a pretty big deal. Like I, I played against uh, Storm Gifts at uh, Modern this week and and beat it because they had a bad draw, which is kind of the only time you beat them um, when you're playing like a mid range deck. Like I, I was playing. Uh, well, I guess it's not true. I I, I play white black Death and Taxes uh, Eldrazi and Taxes these days. So having a Thalia out uh, usually causes problems. If you don't have Thalia, then you're just hoping they have a bad draw. But you know, I asked him about, you know, how good is Opt in the deck? He said it's fantastic. Hmm. And that seems to be a consistently echoed theme um, that's putting Storm right up there. And that makes me, you know, bonus pick for the week. Foil Baral, Chief of Compliance, is available under $10, and there are very few lying around. Okay, good to know. Hmm. And that's a four of in the deck, right? And if, and if this deck is like either the top deck in modern right now or top three, but not so good. It needs to be, have anything banned for all is a pretty good place to yeah, be. Yeah. And I do feel like storm players are the type to want to foil their decks because they're, you know, they've been playing it forever, but I don't know at the same time, betting on storm. Oh, just like that deck gets hit every single bandless update. Uh, I am curious about your. I, I'd like to interview somebody who's playing blue green merfolk and see what they whether they've tested collect a company and whether or not it can find a slot. Because once you're dipping into green, uh, the most expensive spell in your deck being one of the green ones is is better than your one drop being one of the green yeah, ones. Yeah, I do kind of wonder if it's a matter of all of my creatures costs two mana, so collected company doesn't actually save me any mana. Uh, now it's it has other uses, right? Like instant speed puts two of them into play, but you actually end up losing and it draws you a card, but it does lose you mana. So like, maybe that was the problem. But, but because the, the, you might be pulling out Lords, the, it's not really right. Because it's current, like they, um, contribute to one another and to the existing board. Anyway, I, I'm curious to see what Corbin or some of the other Merfolk players that are obviously testing this stuff have, have to say yep. about it. Um, all I can tell you is I just sold a foil Japanese collected company that I bought in the spring for 35 for 70. Um, so collected company foils are in a good place for sale right now. Okay. James, James, yep. put your pen down. <laughs> Am I clicking in you're, your eyes? You're, you're, you're clicking the whole time you're talking. <laughs> no, I have to keep my pens off of my desk too. Is it a pen? Is that what I'm hearing? No, it was a knife, oh, but yeah. same difference. <laughs> you already got a switchblade at your desk? <laughs> yeah, it's just a little pen oh. thing. All um, right. 
So moving yeah, on. Yeah, did you, well, I would say, did you catch anything else in the, you know, because the, we have the places out to like top 64 or something. Well, I mean, shout out to Todd Stevens. <laughs> our, our boy is ultra consistent this season, and I will be very surprised if he doesn't finish the season at the top of the leaderboard. He's at 197 points. The next closest is Brennan DeCandio at 154. That is a big leg up. Yeah, he's uh, pushing hard. Meanwhile, have you noticed that Tron has gone green-black? Just They just yep. swapped out Pyroclasm for Fatal Push, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there's there's at least three or four different versions of Tron, and they're all vi- viable, which speaks volumes about how broken those yeah. lands are. Eight eight rack and fifteenth. Uh, that's just uh, a uh, an anomaly. An anomaly. You see it pop up. To, I mean, Tom Ross brings that to the table sometimes, so it can't I mean, be he's that. Guys, just be bored. <laughs> if he doesn't feel like playing, <laughs> thinking he play, he brings eight rack. He's he's pretty serious about playing good decks, so it, it wouldn't surprise me. Um, that it's an underplayed deck rather than an yeah, overplayed possibly. one. Okay. Oh. All right. So let's, there's two things I want to jump into this oh. week, actually. Um, the first is uh, I jumped back into the buy listing game this week, which is for anybody who follows me, um, not something I do very often. Uh, part of the reason for that is that I'm in Canada. So sending in small buy lists doesn't really make a lot of sense because for buy list prices to be, um, locked in at whatever you find them at on the sites in question, you typically have to get the order over there within a week. So if you're going to send in like $5 worth of cards that you bought and you want to sell it to them for 20 or something, then it just doesn't make any sense because like a track package that'll get there within a week from up here is 20 bucks. So it's got to be a pretty sizable order. The other thing is that I tend to, I try to focus on specs that don't need to be buy listed, that are just in such high demand that I'm going to be able to out them at retail pricing or close to um, or be the last person standing by being willing to hold them for longer than everybody else. And um, so th- the culmination of all of that is that don't do a lot of buy list. Um, but I got curious because I keep c- kept hearing people talk about how you know certain vendors have really excellent buy lists. Card Kingdom is one of the names that gets uh, called out fairly frequently. One of our uh, vendor team members over at MGG Price uh, and a great crew by all accounts um, they got uh, um, very aggressive pricing on quite a, a wide variety of cards. And so what I decided to do was I have my specs kind of organized by imminent sale, things I have currently up for sale, um, things that I know are need time to mature, and then I have a kind of failed specs box, <laughs> stuff that is two, three, four years old, whose original Ethereum um, has fallen apart and are really just being held uh, onto for, for um, you know, as a result of me being too stubborn or inattentive. I know that you, um, having talked about this with you many times, are uh, often in a similar position with, with some specs sitting around that probably shouldn't be. How dare you? How and dare uh, you? so what I did was, <laughs> so what I did was I jumped into that box and said, you know, like let's just take a look. Let's see, like, and I was looking for two things. Uh, a, failed specs that have gone up, but maybe not enough that I think I can get out super profitably or that um, I'm likely to sell at a pace that justifies the number of copies I'm holding or things where I went really, really deep and I am selling them at a profit. So for instance, one example would be Grasp of Fate um, where I bought a bunch of copies in Europe and I make decent money every time I sell one, but it's such a hassle to sell them onesie twosie for less than ten dollars when I bought them at like whatever a buck fifty or two bucks or whatever and I'm selling them at seven minus fees minus ship like a dollar shipping and whatever 
And, you know, this is one of the things where a buy list really becomes valuable um, to uh, a listener is when, you know, say you're dealing with an EDH card that, you know, it was $2 or something and now you can sell it for 10 but instead of trying to sell 100 copies that way, you could take a 20 or 30% reduction from on the buy list and then ship them all at once. Now, one of the problems with some buy lists is that they don't really want enough copies to, uh, you know, really dig out an, uh, enough of your failed spec. So if you're holding 100 copies, maybe some buy list only wants 10 or whatever. So they can still only, you can only pull together a relatively modest order. But I was actually able to pull together a really significant order with Card Kingdom. And then after I had done the first one, I did it again and again. Um, three times total over the course of 24 hours. And and uh, I'll just walk people through what it was because um, I put together all the details. I'm going to post an article probably this weekend on this topic. So I grabbed, I, I shipped them 16 Mutavolts, um, which was a card I got in in on at in around $9. And they were willing um, to cough up 1170 uh, in credit. And my whole plan here was that I don't need the cash, um, have other, you know, through the sale of other cards, have enough income to rededicate to all these specs that we're talking about week after week. Um, and so it seemed like the best bet was going to be to try to trade up into something really special that they have in stock. So, you know, or something reserved list, maybe beta, maybe alpha. Um, and... So it's not a tremendous uh, value exchange to go from $10 a copy to $11.70, but it's still you know 10% plus and gets all those mutavolts out of my pocket when they that card is was in uh, M14, right? So it could easily show up anytime now. Um, it could easily be in the 25th, and whenever it reappears, it's going to drop down into the $5 range. So I don't want to get caught holding. Um, I also exited on 50 copies of Chasm Skulker um, that I got in at in on at a dollar thirty-five, I got two sixty, so uh, almost a double up on those. Twenty quarter calling from uh, twenty fifteen, uh, they were offering seven eighty, and I was in at three point five, so also a double up. Uh, Forty copies of Sliverhive um, that I was in on at two twenty-five, uh, exiting at five eighty-five, so pretty nice on that. Um, dumped the four copies of Hazard I was still holding, got sixteen twenty-five, I was in at six point seven. Um, and then also plowed through 30 copies of Grasp of Fate that I was in on at 2.4, exited at 3.25. Pretty similarly on 24 copies of Mizzix Mastery, 24 Crystalline Crawler, 6 Teamer Battle Rage, 2 Eternal Witness. Um, and the reason I'm a, a enumerating all of this is that if you're holding these cards, this is a buy list you might want to look at because I didn't fill their quota. There are, they are still looking to get additional copies shipped to them. Um, in the second order, uh, first order totaled $1,111 in uh, Bylist credit. And in the second order, I shipped five Urza's Incubator um, that they were offering $18.20 on, and I was in like at $0 because there was a bunch of them sitting in the super collection that I hadn't pulled out. Um, Ten extra planar lens masterpiece that they're offering $39 on, I paid $31. Uh, sorry, paid 28 in Europe. Um, five copies of MPS Rings of Bright Hearth um, that they offered 52 on, uh, and we were in, in the $30 range in Europe earlier this year. Eight copies of Perforos God of the Forge, getting nearly $11. I was in on that at 4 bucks a few years back. And then, so that was another $820 order. 
And then the third part of the order was 25 copies of Atraxa, Praetor's Voice, which was also a European spec. Um, they were offering 21 bucks. We were in at 14. Um, 39 copies of Nykthos, Shrine to Nyx. That was kind of an obvious spec that a lot of people, I think, are holding uh, deep quantities of and should probably start looking at buy lists. I was in it on that around 450 or $5, exiting around 750 with Card Kingdom. And 60 copies of Approach of the Second Sun. I've been selling those in reasonable playsets in the $12 to $14 range, but I don't want to sit around on them. Um, I was in on those at $0.50 cents a piece. They were offering a, a $1.11. I mean, that's the only good way to get out of a spec like that and feel good about it. So that spec order was another 881. So the grand total um, of what Card Kingdom supposedly owes me, and I checked condition pretty closely, so I think they're going to be generous there, um, is $2,800 US. Not a bad buy list order. And the greatest part here is this is a bunch of stuff that either would have sold real slow or was sitting around and wasn't even on my radar to put up for sale. And to be able to clean out a piece of your collection like that is well worth the time to consider. That's obviously uh, a lot of cards. I would say a large part of your spec collection, but I don't, I don't actually know if that's true. But it's so no, it's pretty small. It's pretty small percentage <laughs> wise. But it's, but it's as I said, it's super certainly nice to clean out cobwebs and come up with that kind of number. Yeah, I've definitely got a bunch of that type of stuff. So, but it seems like your your goal here is mostly not even necessarily to profit. It's just to sort of move the stuff that's sort of gone stagnant into a more liquid capital that you can kind of reinvest. Well, I mean, part of it is that th- this was a couple hundred cards, right? So if I'm selling them, if some of them are sold primarily as onesies, um, that's a dollar shipping every time. So right away, you're saving an extra, you're getting an extra $200 out of the buy list order. But even that, even considering all of that, this was $1,676 in expense. Like that was the cost of these specs. And I'm getting $2,800 in buy list credit. And that's 68% profit. I mean, that's, that's super solid. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely good. Um, you know, I wonder what it is against like TCG player, but you would have, you know, probably more than 60%. But then again, you would have had to sell all of it and ship it and all the time and effort. So, you know, if you might have been at like 120% if you went through TCG player, but you're 60% through the buy list, which means you don't have to, you know, ship anything. You just like dump it all in an envelope and, and put it in the mail and not worry about it after that. I mean, that's definitely tempting. Um, I mean, the, the beauty of this is that I, I sent it like, high quality tracked there in three days and it only cost me 20 bucks yeah which when it's a smaller bellis order is an annoying number because it tends to dig into the profits but when you're talking about a couple thousand dollars with the specs it's irrelevant it's like less than one percent of the of the issue at hand so um the shipping was free essentially and the you know even if they nick me on some conditions here or there this is still going to be a 26 2700 uh credit value um which is going to turn into a you know, one of my goals, because I have limited time every week, I can only spend about five or 10 hours a week on MTG Finance, um, my constant tweeting notwithstanding. <laughs> um, the being able to take, you know, 200 cards and turn them into a single card that would be take a little bit more effort to sell, but is essentially liquid. So some kind of beta dual land or whatever is going to be, you know, the best of all possible worlds. That That's an excellent result that I will never be dissatisfied with. Yeah, I mean, I uh, you're telling me this, and I'm thinking, looking over at this box over my shoulder, I'm like, oh, I should really think for that. <laughs> exactly. exactly. And see what the opportunity is there to move some of that stuff. Because some, uh, some of those cards have been sitting in there uh, like 
Uh, I, oh God, what is the oldest spec that I have in that box? It could be in a Strahd block. Might be Zendikar sure. block. I could have Zendikar, like cards that I picked up during Zendikar that I stuck in there. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah, I mean, one of, one of the things here that there's a fallacy that's often discussed in relation to buy list, and that's that the buy list being lower than market doesn't matter because you save the 15% on fees. Um, the reason I call that a fallacy is that if you were exiting to cash and leaving MTG Finance, then that's true because you did save on the fees. If your goal was to exit to um, cash or credit and get a car you wanted, like some piece of power or whatever, and you exit and never, and that's the end of the story, then that that's true. But if you're in a rotational cycle of uh, MTG Finance where you're trying to reinvest, where whatever you're t- trading it into, whether it's cash or a card, you're you're going to then keep cycling, right? Like if I if I trade this into a beta duel at twenty two or twenty three hundred dollars or whatever, I'm going to sit on that for a while and then hope to flip it at twenty five to twenty eight to three thousand maybe. Um, I'm not just going to be sitting on the cash or the credit regardless of what I take, and eventually you're going to then sell that card on eBay. So if I if I get twenty eight hundred in credit and then I sell that whatever that card is, a beta Tundra or something on eBay, I'm going to pay the fees eventually. You're deferring the fees, but you're still going to pay them down the road unless you're out of the game entirely. So that's worth considering as well. Yeah, that's definitely very true. I, um, yeah, a good, definitely a good thing to think about. You know, I, I haven't been, I was playing a lot of the buy listing game, um, several months ago, a year ago, I was, I was doing the bounce credit back and forth. So I would, uh, you know, I think I buy listed like a hundred dollars worth of cards to like channel fireball and then got their trade in bonus and then use all that money to buy a pack of a stock of cards that I could trade in with the bonus to like star city and then take all the star city credit. And I was just kind of like juggling credit back and forth and it, it worked out pretty well. Um, but that was, that was a game I actually got out of because I, excuse me, had, um, an order that I was submitting to some website. I forget who exactly. I would have to go back and check my notes. But I sent them like a $150 buy list order because some of their card, you know, some of their prices were essentially not out of, they were higher than they should have been, which is why I sent them the cards. And then they changed the buy list price on every single card that I sent them in response to me sending them. So it was like, I sent them $150 worth of cards and I bought because I was going to buy list to this website. And they're like, eh, actually, we don't want to pay you for any of these. And I was beyond furious. So that pile of cards, I'm pretty <laughs> sure, is still on my desk. Um, that sucks. Yeah, I was very angry about that. Uh, so in any case, but this sounds like a good idea uh, that I should, I should really consider this. Yeah, the moral of the story is that um, don't be stubborn. Don't be afraid to take lesser profits, especially if you've got a, a hot spec in mind. Like if you've got your 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 eyes on a target and you need two grand to really go to town on it, and you've got that sitting around, and that two grand is that two grand that you would be sending in is just sitting there and is probably gonna be meandering in and around plus or minus five percent of the value for months and months or years and years then there's no reason to hold on to that thinking, oh, it'll go up in five years. Because, you know, one of the things that, you know, (laughs) Stu Summers and I don't agree very often, but one of the things that he drives home on a regular basis that I do agree with is that the more you can cycle through your specs, the better. You you don't want to be sitting on things for an average of a year to two years. You want to be sitting on things for as little time as possible. And if you can make that three months or six months or nine months and continuously be cranking it down and getting good results, 
then you get to annualize those returns and that's going to be better and better for you. Yeah, that I um, agree with. One of the things that's also interesting was I noticed that the uh, I was doing some uh, some accounting around the masterpieces that we were purchasing in Europe earlier this year and realized that we're way into the, well, at least I am, and I'm assuming you are too because you're we're buying many of the same things, way into the black in terms of just the portion of the inventory that I've sold has has recouped all the expense already. And there was another three or 4,000 worth of buy-listable masterpieces sitting in uh, my spec box that I've got up for sale that I'm slowly selling onesie-twosie every couple weeks or whatever. You know, masterpiece soul rings and masterpiece mana crypts and mana vaults and whatever. And it's nice to know um, or to have the security of knowing that you've picked a spec that's, that's high quality enough that you can buy-list them all above what you paid for them at any given moment and that that is unlikely to change anytime in the near future and that those buy lists are going to eke up over time and you're always going to have that backup plan if you want to rededicate those funds yes that is a very good place to be you've essentially already won it's like playing it's like gambling but you won enough money that you pulled all of your original money off the table so now all the chips you're playing with are house money uh yeah, yeah. it is a satisfying sensation all right, so I mean that was actually a pretty decent dive into um, large scale buy listing. Um, so why don't we skip my dedi- my proclaimed topic of the week, and we'll <laughs> save that for next week. That's fine by me because I haven't eaten yet. So <laughs> let's let's wrap this up. Uh, James, where can our listeners find you? You guys can find me on Twitter at MTG Critic, as well as via my weekly articles on MTGPrice.com. Okay, and I, again, am Travis Allen. I'm on Twitter at WizardBumpin, B-U-M-P-I-N. I write every Monday on MTG Price. I also do the webcast, Cartel Aristocrats. And if you like playing Magic, check out Scry.Land. Find Magic in your area. I'd also like to remind our listeners to check out the mtgprice.com Pro Trader service for just $4.99 a month or $49.99 per year. You can get early access to this podcast, fantastic articles by the best MTG finance minds in the business, and a sweet set of online collection management and buy list tools that will drive better returns and save you money playing Magic the Gathering. All right, James, that brings us to the end of episode 90. I thought it was another great episode. Thank you for joining me, and I will see you next week. Thank you, Travis. We'll see you guys all next week on another episode of MTG Fast Finance.